Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to another episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, my guest is Dr. Tom Inclanon. He is the owner founder and chief scientific officer of Cosenta Wellness from Scottsdale, Arizona, and his wellness center has a unique approach to healthcare and cancer treatment. So we're going to be talking about cancer treatment, alternative methods, and the current state of the healthcare system in the United States, as well as nutrition, exercise, and a lot more. And before we get into our interview, let's hear from one of our sponsors, Golf Tours. Hi, this is Goff, owner of Golf Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com. Hi, I'm Don Damari, and you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, my guest is Dr. Tom Inkledon. He's the founder and chief scientific officer at Causenta Wellness. Hi, Dr. Tom. How's it going? It's going great. How about you? Uh, it's going incredibly well here. I'm uh, like a kid in a candy store waiting for some new gadgets to be delivered. Oh, what are you waiting for? Sort of a functional slash productivity type center. So every room will have a sit-to-stand desk. So every person that works here can physically exercise or move more. And then everybody's going to have a surface book too. So the idea is when you come in, and you attach your docking station, you're connected to two monitors. So imagine every single room in a building has the ability to be connected to the cloud and across multiple platforms. And then the station that every person is at is mobile now, so they can it's on wheels, they can go wherever. And so that, let's say if I want to see you, let's say if I was the doctor assigned to you, if you were a patient here, I could see you in one room, and I can literally travel around the building with you room to room, and still maintain, like I have uh, computer devices that keep track of all the data that we're collecting from the different things that we measure. Dr. Tom, Cosenta Wellness, what do you guys focus on there? What do you work on? I know you work a lot with people who've been diagnosed with different types of cancer, and you are a functional medical provider, and you look at the root cause of the circumstances. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you do there. One, I have a lot of fun. Two, everything that we do has a movement or you might say exercise as a basis. So it doesn't matter if someone's coming here that's a CEO or an athlete that's you know training for whether it's CrossFit or Olympic Games or NFL. If someone's dealing with a terminal illness, the assessment protocols are basically the same. We have to understand what's going on inside your body. So I would start with a review of some medical records, review their systems and their symptoms, see what's going on. And then based on the information they share, we would offer, hey, here's how we would approach it. And we usually try to make an immediate impact, meaning five minutes or less, I'm wowing your mind and making you think, wow, this is a place I should have come to years ago. So we do uh, full neurological evaluations of people's brains and the rest of the nervous system. We find missing pieces of their health. They didn't even know they had something going, like had a problem in that area. So we make it so that they could feel a difference immediately because then it's very motivating to continue to go forward. I've worked with people as young as four and as old as 103. So I cannot say I worked with you know zero to 100, but I could say it's pretty darn close. <laughs> and it's uh, we laugh a lot. You don't see anyone crying here, which is kind of rare today's age when most cancer treatment centers, all you see are people looking frail and dying. The people here look anything but that. We have a kind of a joke when people come in in a wheelchair or a quad kinks, they can't move, they can't walk very well, and they need some assistance. 
when I walk in, we're like, welcome to Cosenta and get ready to say goodbye to these old gadgets because you won't need them anymore. And we've had people come here and start walking within an hour of being here, even though they had not walked for four months before coming here. And on the uh, website right now, got a really cool story of a young lady. She literally was, uh, she lost the ability to breathe and to swallow on the way here. We had to redirect her from here to an ER. We're able to help her, even though we had not seen her physically. We're able to still give advice to the hospital as far as what to do. She did live past that, you know, choking out episode, if you will, a lot losing the ability to breathe. Came in a wheelchair and she was discharged two months later. She had gained about 40 pounds of lean body mass, looked like a totally different person and with no evidence of disease. And so we get really close with the people here because we look at very intimate details of their biochemistry and physiology. We are masters of these things way beyond any center I've ever seen because we're driven by the pursuit of excellence in ways no one else has really considered or thought about before. Nice. And so in your opinion, why is traditional healthcare broken? My goodness, how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so here's what I'll share with you. I've been an advisor to the White House, to the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic. I've been on all kinds of committees for multi-billion dollar corporations, centers, whatever you want to say. I never met anyone that was evil or diabolical or, (laughs) you know, someone that I wish something bad would happen to, you know. But what I saw over and over again is that profit motives exceeded the concern for what's best for the patient or optimal biology. And a good example, I don't want to throw any centers under the bus because I do believe that I think companies can change their vision a little bit. But I've seen when there were solutions to help patients deal with cancer that only cost $12 a month, and none of the doctors at the center would recommend the solution simply because if they did so, it would mean they would lose millions of dollars. And one of their huge conflict of interest right now in medicine is that if you're the CEO of a very large center and you're getting you know millions to billions of dollars from doing things like radiation and chemotherapy, and someone comes along and says, hey, we could do some exercise and we could use these inexpensive drugs that are no longer on patent. We can repurpose them as weapons to fight cancer. And you go, great, let's look at it. And all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, per patient, I was making 400 grand before and now I'm making zero. I cannot go to my board, cannot go to the shareholders and say, guess what I just did? I saved more lives by lost billions. They're going to get kicked off, you know, going to get fired. They're going to bring in someone that can make money. And that's the big problem that patients are faced with right now when they go to very large centers. They are just a means to make money. They are not a human being that someone actually cares about that you want to make sure that person lives. And the question we ask people all the time when they come here, people say, do you take insurance? And the joke is, I'll take money from anybody. Show me an insurance company that pays for exercise and nutrition, though, because they don't. And what happens is that people forget that it's some knucklehead behind a counter that doesn't know who you are. And do you really think they have your best interest at heart? They don't. So decisions are made based off of cash flow and, and more business decisions. The decisions are not made for optimal biology, like what's best for you to help you feel better, make sure you live. So I would say the simple first answer would be that there's a conflict of interest in terms of what's the priority here. The priority should be do what it takes to help. I live in the United States, and I guess I would say the priority should be for doctors in the United States to help the people of the United States. If you're a doctor practicing elsewhere, it should be the same thing. But what you see, unfortunately, is people in different countries feel like they're not being heard or taken care of properly. So they go elsewhere. They go to other countries where maybe they feel like the grass is greener on the other side. Outside of that conflict of interest as far as, you know, what's the focus here, I would say that healthcare has evolved into a giant mess where doctors don't practice in a way to really help people. They practice in a way to manage their time and to minimize liability. 
So fear is what's involved in more decisions in science or optimal biology outcomes, things like that. So those are two big things right there that are really, they're hindering our ability to really help people. And what's going to happen pretty soon is there'll be wars between, you know, companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google that are developing apps for cell phones where you can start taking measurements of you know, physiological parameters. And then people are say, I don't want to go to the doctor. I can measure what's in my blood from my cell phone. So why would I go to the doctor, you know, have some untrained professional stick me and now I got a hematoma on my arm or something. As we switch from drawing blood to using needleless or techniques that don't require a blood draw, that's going to be incredibly disruptive. And you see multi-billion dollar giants collapse overnight because they simply cannot transition fast enough from a current revenue model to a new revenue model. So as far as treating cancer, we talked about nutrition and exercise and how you know insurance won't pay. And prevention is really kind of the buzzword nowadays. People are into wellness and prevention. So how do you believe that strength training, exercise, nutrition, do you think they can help prevent and treat cancer? Oh, absolutely. But what I would say to was I would qualify, prevention has to be like appropriate and individualized, right? Like imagine if I told you, hey, I want to get stronger. And you said, what are you doing? And I go, well, I'm running around planet Earth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that may not be the best strategy, right? And it sounds a little silly, but what happens is we see people, they'll say, oh, I was exercising my whole life. And like, that's really cool. What have you been doing? And what they've been doing is stuff they're really good at. You know, they're not doing stuff that challenges their fitness levels in multiple directions. And so like the rule of thumb is generally speaking, you might say women are more flexible than men. So more women should be doing strength training and more men should do something that improves their mobility and their flexibility. But what you see is the opposite. You see lots of guys strength training and you see lots of women doing like yoga or Pilates. And so they're getting some of their fitness elements developed, but they're not getting things dialed into, well, what's happening with your cerebellum and your cortex communicating to each other and controlling your body movement patterns. So what happens then is you kind of have this false sense of security, like you're working out for 20 years and you think, hey, I look good on the outside, therefore everything on the inside must be good. And what we know is that's simply not true. Generally speaking, people that move more are going to be healthier. People that eat a wider variety of fruits and vegetables are going to be healthier. But that's not like an automatic guarantee because other things could be going on that you simply don't know. And so then it's like having a password for your computer. You think because you got to type in a special command or something that no one else could see your stuff. And then someone simply steals your laptop. They take out the hard drive and they reboot it as an external drive in another system and they access all your data. So it's kind of like there was a workaround. You just didn't know it. And so you felt really secure. And it's kind of the same thing with a lot of the ways people approach their health. Instead of discovering what's happening inside of their body and addressing it, they're reading stuff on the internet and then using Dr. Google to make decisions for them. And most people don't realize just the incredible bias when they search for something, how information appears, and then that information is manipulated to get them to make a decision that may not be the decision they would have made if they really understood exactly what was happening. Right. So what do you recommend when you look at individualized prevention? What are some examples, recent examples that you have? Sure. So anyone who walks through the door, we have a team approach here. So I don't try to be like an expert in everything. What I try to do is I focus right now more on a neurologic, or let's say neural type stuff. Everybody gets to see a physical therapist, a chiropractor, strength coach, a couple of other professionals, like a naturopathic doctor. If they have cancer, they may see an oncologist here, maybe a nutritionist, depending on you know what's going on. Then, you know, each one of the professionals here is going to kind of do their own assessment in their own way, and then we pull that data. So as an example, if I was meeting with someone physically, I would have them walking barefoot, stand with their feet close together, palms are rotated forward, do a something called a Romberg stance, and then have them close their eyes. And I'm looking to see if there's a lot of excessive postural sway. 
If there is, then we know, okay, there's some issues going on with their cerebellum, which means that they're not going to have really good accuracy, balance, and coordination. So now when they're going to lift weights or run, they're thinking in order to get better, I have to lift more, I have to run faster or run further. What they're not considering is that the internal wiring of their nervous system may be a little disconnected or off. So no matter how much effort they put into something, they're simply not going to get the best return on their investment of time. So we do things to basically, we create new movement patterns for that individual that help them to regain some of that lost neural or neuromuscular control. And it takes sometimes like minutes, I guess it's not a long process, but once they feel it, then they're like, holy man, I actually feel stronger. I actually feel like I can move better. And then we kind of go through these different assessments for different parts of their body. So you could say that kind of takes care of like some of the neural biomechanical type analysis. And then we do some different uh, fitness tests, you know, see how strong they are, how flexible they are, stuff like that. And then on the biochemical side, we look at what lab tests they've had done. And then based on these things, we would customize intravenous therapies. We're the only center in the world I've seen so far that actually has people working out while we're doing IVs. That's one of the reasons we're able to really, you know, do a good job of beating cancer and helping people get stronger. We take advantage of concepts like nutrient partitioning in a local way. So an example would be, let's say if someone came in and they're very frail and they can't stand, we can get uh, simple tourniquets that we teach people how to use. They're kind of like Velcro straps. We can put them around top of their thighs or top of their upper arms. So it creates basically reduces blood flow a little bit. And it has to become more fit. We can make them tighter to reduce it more and have them do some light weights. And the impact of trapping local fatigue metabolites is it stimulates all kinds of gene expression for muscle protein synthesis and clearing glucose and fat you know, like lipids and cholesterol, but it stimulates improvements in circulation. And so now at the same time as we're doing an IV in that area, we can actually get nutrients trapped in a local region. Or if we decide we want to go to, let's say, other parts of the body, we can release the tourniquet and let it go elsewhere. But we basically use exercise to get blood flow to the target muscles, and then we get nutrients to those muscles so that people get stronger about eight times faster. So a patient come in here, there's a friend going somewhere else, they will simply crush them in about a week or two, and then their friends are going to be wondering what drugs are they taking because they're making such fast progress. And then when they tell them, well, I just work with these science guys and these docs, and you know, there's the stuff they're doing to me, it doesn't sound like a miracle or anything because it's really not. It's just very basic stuff, but it's just individualized. So people are getting what they need and not stuff that they don't need. So like if your automobile needs oil or gas and you give it oil or gas, it runs better. But if your automobile did not need gas or oil, there'd be no benefit. You know, if anything, you might make a mess. So it's kind of that sort of simplistic approach that we use with every area of the body that we assess. Excellent. As far as diets, there's a lot of buzz about the ketogenic diet in the last few years. Does this have a place in cancer prevention? So it's a tool. Most people make the mistake of thinking because they read something that it would apply to them. And then that's simply not, it's not scientifically sound. Ketogenic diets have been around for a very long time and cancer cells don't ask for permission. And when they mutate, they go into the direction they go. So what happens is someone could start off on a ketogenic diet and it might be a useful tool. But once the cancer cells start to go through some they call resistant clone transitions, meaning it starts off one way and now it mutates in a different direction, there may be an upregulation of gluconeogenic enzymes, meaning that those same cancer cells can take the carbon skeletons from amino acids and convert them to glucose. So they can take glycerol from fatty acids or I'm sorry, from triglycerols, and they can convert that glycerol into glucose. So even if you're not eating any form of carbohydrate, the basic building blocks for amino acids and fatty acids and glycerol, that those things can be converted into glucose by the right. different enzymes. So then it won't really matter, you know, in that regard, if you're taking low carb or not so much, because 
essentially you just teach the cancer cell how to do something else. So what would make more sense is to look at what enzymes are active, like what pathways are active in the cancer cells, and then plan your nutrition strategy or your treatment strategy accordingly. So as an example, there are pathways like NQ01 that are upregulated. There's other pathways like NERF2. Some people have cancers that are very high in glutathione. So that would then sort of dictate the direction that you would go with your nutrition or other treatment strategies. If I had to pick a simple you know, strategy for people to start with, you want a nutrition regimen that provides, that increases oxidative stress once you have cancer. So there's kind of like dichotomy of findings, and that is before you have a diagnosis of cancer, a really good diet would be one rich in antioxidants because it appears to really protect us from a lot of different diseases later in life. And the simplest way to do that is a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Now, there's different data sets out there or different groups about maybe doing more or less of different nutrients, but I don't know anyone that's tested as many different markers and as many different people as we have. And when I look at all the data as a whole, not just cherry picking studies here and there that prove a point or something, when I look at all the data as a whole, one of the findings is that the healthiest people eat the widest variety of food without any side effects, like no food allergies, no excessive gas or you know redness or anything like that. So that means then we have to look at the microbiome to really understand what the influence things are having because what many people forget is how you react to food is determined by your germline genetics and your microbiome. Meaning if, let's say, you were born and you have certain genes present that when you're hit with a challenge, you produce excessive amounts of inflammation and now you have certain organisms in your digestive tract that when you feed them, you know, carbohydrates or fat or proteins, those organisms become more active, producing inflammatory substances, then you're going to suffer. And many people don't consider the possibility about the interface between the food and their body is the microbiome. So they, right. they make a lot of statements about you know, when they avoid certain foods, they feel better. And that might be where... A lot of people just by switching to, let's say, a ketogenic diet or switching to a vegan diet or some other diet, maybe by switching to another diet, they reduced symptoms of certain foods interacting with the microbiome, and now they feel better. So they're translating that to, well, this diet helped me. And it may have, but the root cause of their issue is still there, meaning the organisms that were present are still in their body. So if they really want to get healthy, they would do a thorough stool analysis, look at the organisms in the digestive tract, and then address it accordingly. In terms of when many patients come here, they're already following a diet. Most people are doing the best they can to eat fairly clean. Like I don't have people coming in saying, hey, I eat you know Big Macs and Twinkies for, all, for every meal. I don't ever see any of that personally. So what I usually see is that People are trying their best. You know, what they're doing looks fairly reasonable, but it just may not be individualized enough for them. And one of the things to keep in mind, you know, well, we talk a lot about cancer, or at least typically I get asked a lot of questions about cancer. Independent of cancer, the United States and many other countries around the world has a growing obesity problem where, you know, many states now, more than one third of the state is obese or overweight. And what we're seeing is that, you know, most people look on the outside and they see like, you know, there's people a little bit fatter or something. They're looking at subcutaneous fat. And, you know, that may not be everyone's cup of tea, you know, but what's more dangerous than subcutaneous fat is the visceral fat. That's the much deeper fat inside of people that covers their heart and their liver and their other organs. That's the fat you really want to get rid of. So if it meant like aesthetically, you have no abs, but internally, a no visceral fat would be a much healthier person and probably have less disease overall. And one of the things that's starting to maybe you know, create some theories or speculation is that as we get fatter as a society, 
our levels of visceral fat are going to increase, which means dramatically higher levels of inflammation, which means we're going to be, you know, setting the stage for all kinds of increased risks or increased rates of different diseases like cancer. Right. Well, thank you for that. That was a really good explanation and I hope it made a lot of sense to people. And so the visceral fat, as we know, that is, you know, the most dangerous and they, they talk about that. There's always, you know, studies about that. So you think that that's really a big issue and society is getting more and more sedentary, even though we know the benefits of, of exercise in general, sedentary and obesity rates going up. That's the biggest risk. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting, so altered sleep cycle, sitting and EMFs, those are three things that I don't think everyone always thinks about because they're kind of benign. Like, you know, you got a deadline, so you work later, right? Or there's some pressure and you're trying to get something accomplished. So like students in college, you know, notorious for cramming and, and studying all night to get, you know, do hopefully do better on a test. And it, it definitely appears, I've actually tested this on myself and a few other people where we tested levels of inflammation. And it was a wide range of markers, but we tested them when we're getting you know, adequate sleep and let's just say our bodies feel great, like no achiness or anything. And then we created situations of where we're sleeping two to three hours a day. And within a single day, markers of inflammation go up dramatically, almost three times. By the end of five days, people with no signs of arthritis start to report they feel stiff and they have trouble moving. So, you know, it's kind of like there's some thoughts that from an evolutionary perspective, if you don't take care of your health, your body will naturally do something, you know, to get you in that direction, meaning if you're not getting enough rest, the body will figure out a way to slow you down so you do get some rest, but like make it harder to move. And really what we want to do is embrace strategies that make it easier for us to move because some of the findings that one of the ways that we can assess if someone's going to live a longer, healthier life is their ability to do a wide range of movement safely. I mean, like they can touch their toes without hurting their backs or something like that. And their speed of movement. So the slower people move as they get older, the less likely they are to live a long, healthy life. The faster people move as they get older, meaning, you know, you ever see like if you went shopping or something, you see some older people that are walking sort of normal or as fast as everyone else in a mall or something or a supermarket. And then you see other people that are just barely trotting along. And it's those people barely trotting along that, are at the greatest risk for other diseases because they're, it's like they're going downhill fast and becoming more and more frail. You know, what we try to do for those people is figure out how to get them to move better and move faster without increasing pain or, you know, stressing up their body more than they can handle. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. Now, I wanted to ask you a question about your healing journey. So, in your bio, it said several years ago, you had a parasitic illness and you lost 30 pounds in a very short amount of time. And you had gone to your doctors and you went against their advice as it wasn't helping you. Do you mind sharing this story with our listeners? Sure. Only if you promise not to tell anyone else. (laughs) 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 Uh, So... I said that, you know, because it's for the podcast. So anyway, <laughs> I'll give a quick summary. So I was training for the Olympics and weightlifting. So I'm in a weight class sport. So any athlete in a weight class sport, like you monitor your weight all the time because you can't be too right. heavy or you can't compete in that weight class. And, you know, we had coaches and coaches would be weighing us and assessing our performance and things like that. So I was competing at 181 pounds. Back then, I was really lean. So it was already difficult to make weight. And so my coaches wouldn't let me get too much above that weight limit. So like maybe they let me get to like 186, 190, but they won't let me get too heavier because it'd be very difficult, you know, to make the 181. And I went to a barbecue one weekend, truly after barbecue, I just felt like, you know, my stomach was grumbling. And I just felt very uncomfortable. And next thing you know, I'm just running to the bathroom nonstop. And so by the next day, check my weight 
and I'm down to like 171, which is like unheard of. And so I went to the hospital and I said, look, I'm not feeling so good. And the um, people at the hospital said, well, your blood pressure and your heart rate are fine. This will pass. And they basically discharged me. I'm like, I don't think you guys are getting it. The problem's not my blood pressure, my heart rate, the problem's somewhere else. And so anyway, they discharged me. Next day, I'm still going to the bathroom all night long, can't sleep. Now my health is disrupted in many different ways. And I couldn't keep anything down. It's running right through me. So now I go back to the same place. And because there wasn't another hospital nearby, so I was kind of like forced to go to just this one. So I go there and they go the same thing. You know, they check my blood pressure and my heart rate. And they go, oh, your blood pressure, heart rate are fine. They'll probably pass. I'm like, I've lost 20 pounds now in two days. And you guys aren't doing anything. And they're like, well, it's just probably like, you know, a bug and it'll pass. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I was not feeling confident with these guys. And so now the next day I lose consciousness and the ambulance is now taking me to the same hospital. And they check my blood pressure and heart rate and they go, oh, your blood pressure and heart rate are very low. That's why you fainted. And I'm like, okay, the reason why they're low is because I can't stop going to the bathroom. And that's the third time I'm here. I'm still got to run to the bathroom and you guys are not doing anything about it. So what can we do to make sure we fix this problem so I can get out of the hospital? Because now I'm admitted as a patient. And they're like, well, we're going to monitor you and see what happens. I'm like, that's just stupid. You're saying we already gave you time. You didn't get better. And now we're going to wait some more. I don't see that as creating the outcome I'm looking for. So I'd like to see a doctor. So I, I asked the doctor if they could order some tests to see what's going on. So they run a stool test. And back then, I didn't know much about digestive stool analysis or anything like that. So they run this test. A short while later, they come back and they said everything was negative. So I asked a logical question. I go, well, what did you test for? And they looked at me like I was an alien from outer space. And they're like, you know, how dare you ask that question? And I'm like, this is my body. I should know what you're doing. And so they literally couldn't even tell me the names of the organisms they had tested for. And so now I'm losing confidence fast. I feel like, you know, I'm in the twilight zone of healthcare. I then asked to speak to someone else that maybe could find out what the tests were. And they gave me five names of organisms, and, and I didn't know names of organisms then. So, you know, they could have made them up. I wouldn't have known anyway. And so after they were done, I said, let me ask you a question. There's got to be more than five organisms out there. And what if I had number 100 on all-time popularity chart? How would you know if I had that if you didn't test for it? So the response is, well, you most likely don't have it. I said, well, we know I have a problem. You ran the test for five things. You didn't find anything. And now you're saying, I most likely would have something else that you didn't test for. That doesn't really make any sense to me. They were basically refusing to do any more testing. So I said, all right, let's try a different approach. I was dealing most with nurses at that point. Let me talk to the doctor again. And I asked the doctor for some sort of broad spectrum, antiparasitical or antibacterial, because it felt like to me, like there was a tadpole swimming inside me. He said no, because he was afraid of antibiotic resistance. And I said, look, I'm dying right now. And you're worried about if I'm going to die 10 years from now from something, I'd rather solve the problem today and deal with the other problem tomorrow. Because right now, I don't see any solution that's been presented from you guys. So he still refused to write a prescription. And so then I asked for another doctor. Another doctor came in. I explained my logic. He said, sure. He wrote the script. I don't really remember. This was almost 30 years ago now. Could have been Cipro or something like that. I don't even know if that was around then, but it was a single medication. And about two hours later, I was fine. So I always felt that I had a parasite just based on what I've since learned. But I really, I didn't have any tests that confirmed that or not. And but what I learned of that is about that experience is that, you know, it wasn't about doing what it takes to solve the problem. It was more about doing what the system says to do. So independent of my results, they're still going to do what they want anyway. So what do you recommend? So if somebody is going through something similar and they're not getting the right answers from their doctor, what do you suggest they do? You find another doctor. I mean, there's lots of doctors that care. I think, one, there's tons of doctors, right? So it's not like um, can't find any. And lots of docs are fed up with the standard of care model. 
So if you're not happy with the results you're getting, there's got to be a little bit of sense of rational thinking. Let's say if you've been dealing with an issue for 20 years, you can't just keep bouncing around seeing a doctor every time because then you won't have a history. And without history, like it's going to be hard for someone to really understand who you are as an individual. But if you feel like your doctor is not listening and your doctor is not you know, giving you support, or if the doctor says terrible bedside manner, you, know, you want to drop them like a hot potato and find another doctor because there's lots of good docs out there. You know, tell them, here's what I've been dealing with this for a while and I really need you to help me and let them give you their best shot. But I would tell people that if you're looking to only do things through insurance, you're going to be very disappointed in the end because insurance is not about optimal biology or solving the problem. Insurance is about managing the problem, which means then that journey means prescription drugs and stuff that doesn't really align well with most people's core values of health. You know, if you came in and let's say you were in such a severe state that your life was under threat, we would do whatever it takes to stabilize you. So that's drugs or surgery or whatever. Now, once you're stable, now we we got time. And with that time, now we want to figure out how to fix this problem permanently so you don't need the drugs anymore. But what tends to happen is for many people, they get into a model where once they are on a prescription drug, they're on it for life. They're never given the opportunity to actually do something to improve their health so they don't need the drugs anymore. And, and as an example, high blood pressure you know, is very common now. Simple things like heat can upregulate endothelial nitric oxide synthase in our blood vessel cells. And a little bit of uh, heat in the form of sauna therapy or, or some infrared sauna can actually help reduce blood pressure substantially. And for a long period of time, like 30 days or more, you know, so there's things that people can do. There's certain extracts from cocoa that really appear to be beneficial for regulating blood pressure. There's some uh, peptides from whey protein. You know, consumption of more fruit tends to have a positive impact on blood pressure by getting rid of excessive water. So there's lots of options that people can consider to help improve their blood pressure. So it's not like you got to do one way or else. It's kind of like, hey, why don't you see how your body responds, right? And then find something that resonates with you, it feels good, and it works. You know, so it's healthy, like plus all the other bonuses. So there's one other thing I wanted to address as far as cancer treatment and mental health in your bio. That was something that was mentioned. Now, What's the link there as far as the treatment of cancer, as far as your mental health? Well, so, you know, you hear a lot of myths and you hear myths like there's no cure for cancer. If people take a step back, there's lots of things in life that some people say can't be done. And lo and behold, it gets done. So there was a time when we would say no human can lift 500 pounds overhead. And lo and behold, lots of people have now done that. Or there's a time we'd say no one could run this fast. And lo and behold, lots of people have done it. So there's a history of all kinds of unique accomplishments happening under the right conditions. And in terms of dealing with cancer, what I see many times is that people are not dying from the cancer per se, they're dying from very poor choices that they've made. So as an example, they go through the motions, you know, as opposed to doing something with effort or intensity. So when we first engage with someone, we do a free consult, meaning we talk with them on the phone. They don't pay a penny for that. And we ask them questions like, what's your purpose in life? And why is it that you need to live? And surprisingly, many people can't answer those questions. And imagine now, how are you going to stick with anything if you don't feel like you even belong here? You know, those are questions that people need to get sorted in their own head. So I would say there's an aspect of mindset or an aspect of mental health that's very important. Because, you know, getting a diagnosis of cancer, it's extremely overwhelming Everybody does the same thing and makes the same mistake. And the mistake is this. They, they get the diagnosis, then they Google, 
the name of their cancer. So, you know, prostate cancer, breast cancer. Then once they understand it a little bit, then they go put the word treatment afterwards. So they go prostate cancer treatment or breast cancer treatment. And the mistake they make is they think they're actually going to be able to look up the answer to solve a disease that millions and millions of people are dying from. One third of all patients with cancer are going to die, whether or not they're dying, you know, because of their mindset or because they just waited too long. You know, many people say, well, I have no pain. Well, that's not a really good reason to not take action. So what you're saying is you want to wait till blood is coming out of your rectum and your mouth and then you'll take action. Most people would say it's kind of stupid, but yet, lo and behold, that's what most people actually do, particularly men. Most men will wait to the very end because they go, I feel fine. I'm like, well, you never felt cancer cells growing. So why would you use that metric of evaluation to determine if you move forward? What you should do instead is say, hey, I'm healthy enough right now. I can actually beat this if I take action today. But most people twist it the other way and say, well, let me wait a little longer so I can make sure I make it harder. And by making it harder, they're guaranteed to cost themselves more money and to endure a lot more suffering than they could have. We see that quite a bit. We get about 200 calls a week. And I would say 80% of people say, I'm going to wait to do something. And then, you know, four to six months later, when they contact us and they go, look, I got to do something right now. Like, wow, you just, you could have maybe beaten this for maybe 10 or 20 grand. And now you're going to have to spend maybe 40 to 100 grand. That makes no sense. Why would you do that to yourself? And it's because they're using the wrong uh, mindset and the approach. And so we see um, a lot of reactive decision-making and very little strategic decision-making. Like if you're planning on taking a trip to a foreign country, you might read about the country, learn a little bit about the culture, the customs, you know, places to visit and see, and then get on a plane and see where it lands and figure it out from there, because then you're not going to get the best out of that experience. But a lot of times people shortchange themselves by not going through the process in a way to make sure they get the information out of it that they need to make strategic decisions. They push things off and they get to the point where they hurt so bad they can't function that way anymore. And then they make a reactive decision. Well, thank you. And that's definitely true. And hopefully we can get past that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's something that, well, here's the reality is that people that can't grow and change, right, they basically eliminate themselves, whether it's intentional or not, you know. And it's a sad thing that I see, you know, Cancer doesn't care if you're good or bad, right? It doesn't ask you what was your occupation, what did you do for a living. It just grows. It has no, doesn't take a holiday. There's no mercy. I've seen a lot of really wonderful people pass away. My honest opinion was that I didn't feel they had to pass away. I just felt they just waited too long to do the right things. That's true. And so your advice would be to people is don't delay, do it preventatively. Now, where can people get more information about you? Like, do you have a, I'm assuming you have a website and social media. Do you mind giving that out? Sure. So the website is causenta.com and that's spelled C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A. There's a run on a homepage as a form that people can fill out. We got uh, some really cool, impressive things. There's a lot of stuff available for free online. So there's a resources section there's all kinds of kind of like free ebooks and uh, podcasts and blog posts, things like that. On the pull down menu on the form, people could select the type of interest they have. So whether you want to set a world record in a sport or whether you want to get some ideas of how you're going to beat, you know, a terminal illness, we have, you know, all those resources and capabilities here. And the initial consult is free to kind of get people going in the right direction. And um, what's really cool is we don't make money off promoting a specific treatment or specific, you know, supplement or drug or surgery or any other type of therapy. We make money by doing research and a lot of different technologies. So when people contact us, 
we can give them unbiased opinion. So we're not making money like if a surgery is done or not done. And I recently had a man contact me and he had colon cancer that had infiltrated around the rectum and into some of the muscle. And he went somewhere and the doctor's like, you got to do surgery and you're going to have a colostomy bag for life. And so that turned him off and he decided he's going to start looking for a natural way. So when he came here to interview our center, I said to him first, you know, the natural ways that you're looking for, they don't exist. So the people you've been talking to have been lying to already. And if, if I'm wrong, all they have to do is show some data, show one or two people. That's all. Of course, they couldn't. And what I suggested to him is that, you know, maybe the doctor you first spoke to wasn't a good surgeon for you. You know, there's all kinds of surgical oncologists all over the United States that are quite skilled. And here's what I'd recommend. Let's find a surgeon that can do the job for you and minimize the likelihood you'll need a colostomy bag. But let's get the cancer out of you. Then let's look at treating cells, cancer cells around the body, making sure there's no evidence of disease. And then once you're safe from cancer, now let's take a look at maybe a colostomy reversal or another process. And he's like, no one ever told me any of this stuff before. So we were able to basically get him in the right direction so you can get the right care. And we don't do surgery. So essentially, I'm telling people that are coming here, I'm telling them, hey, go somewhere else, kind of. Um, and the reason right. is we're committed to people living we're not committed to therapy or to treatment or whatever, because we have thousands of options here for people. So it doesn't matter to me which one you do. It matters to me that you get the right one. And his outcome was good? Well, he just got started on his journey. This was two days ago. So, oh, okay. you know, so he's a long way, like the surgery hasn't even happened yet or anything, you know, but he was just very appreciative. It didn't occur to him. I guess the, his experience was so negative with the surgeon. They were scheduling surgery on him without even telling him like what's going to happen, right? They were just uh, like yeah. throwing him right into the fire, so to speak. And that's very common is that people are pressured into doing things and anyone can say, hold on, I don't even know what you're doing. You need to explain it to me. Uh, one thing I would like to share, if you don't mind, sure. is lots of people, they're overwhelmed when they get a cancer diagnosis, but there's two questions I just need to know to ask. And I'll explain the logic afterwards, but the first question is, how will you treat the cancer in my body? So imagine like if you came here, and let's just say you had a cancer diagnosis and you're coming in, and before I know your name, I already got a treatment plan. You already know it's one size fits all medicine, right? That's not the place you want to go. You're, you're a number, you're a statistic, you're not a human being. So you need to know the place you're going, how are they going to help you versus someone else with the same cancer? And then the second question is, what will you do when it doesn't work? Meaning you're asking the doctor, but you have to assume the treatment won't work. And then you have to ask them, what's their plan B and C and D? Many centers, they prescribe some drugs, they do some radiation, they do some surgery. If that doesn't work, there's no backup plan. The next step is you go, then you get recommended to go on hospice and wait to die. And many people don't think about asking those two questions. Instead, they ask a ridiculous question. And the ridiculous question is, oh, what is your treatment success rate? And the reason why that's a ridiculous question is because no two people respond the same way. So it doesn't matter if the success rate is zero or 100%, there's no guarantee any of that will work for you. And yet, so what everybody does is look at what other people, how other people responded, and then put all their eggs in that basket. And then when they get there, guess what they find out? That they didn't respond and now they're gonna die because the center didn't have a plan B. In the United States right now, more and more centers are no longer publishing any kind of treatment success rate because they understand it's deceptive. What is being published and what's happening is if, let's say, um, you want a particular treatment, most cancer treatment centers will refer you to a government cancer site that talks about the outcomes from that treatment. Whether or not they'll apply to you 
is very controversial, most likely won't apply to you. So what you need to get a sense of is, is the place you're going, do they have enough options to help you? Because you have to assume the first strategy is not going to work. Well, thank you for that. And so people can take that advice and then they can visit your website. And where are you located in case people want to go to you? Oh, yeah, we're located in Scottsdale, Arizona. We invite people to come all the time. We can schedule a tour. They can see all the cool, shiny gadgets we have and look at all different ways. We take a lot of technologies and develop new applications for them outside of the original intended purposes. People always get a kick out of the stuff they see here because it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, I didn't realize you could use that technology in that other way other than what it was originally designed for. But it's kind of like if you were in the gym working out, once you have a dumbbell in your hand, you know, you could do an overhead press, you could do a bench press, you could do a dumbbell row, you could do a curl. There's no limit on what you could do with that dumbbell. It's just simply a tool that you're using to help get yourself stronger, improve your fitness somehow. Many technologies are like that, but because many healthcare professionals don't think outside the box, they think very linearly, if the manual says use it this way, that's the only way they use it. And then there's other ways it may help people, but no one will get those benefits because they're just following, you know, everything verbatim. You're right. Well, thank you very much. And if people are in the Scottsdale area, they can visit you and go to the website, Cosenta, C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A.com. And thank you, Dr. Tom, for being on the podcast. And I appreciate everything that you shared today. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Oh, thank you. You too. Susan, you remember the time we were in Orange County? We were driving around and we got lost. And we ran into this place called Avila's El Ranchito. You remember the place? The place had awesome decor and authentic margaritas. Did you know that Avila's El Ranchito has been around since 1966? They have 13 locations throughout Orange County. Visit Salvador Avila's location in Lake Forest and Foothill Ranch for great food, ambiance, and specialty margaritas. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me or for Dr. Tom, you can visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com, and click on contact. We will get back to you. You can also contact me on my Instagram at teaspoonofhealing or facebook.com slash teaspoonofhealing. While you're on my site, you can check out my blog, show notes, and previous episodes. If you're not a current subscriber to this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast application and hit subscribe so you never miss another episode. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein. 